Hello, everyone. You may have noticed that on the descriptions of each episode, I have a trigger warning that says that the opening deals with the relationship between theology and ethics. Often, we'll be sharing quotes from pastors justifying abusive theology or ethics. Please listen with care. And I want to iterate, reiterate that for this episode in particular. I will be sharing some quotes from some pastors that are promoting abusive theology. So please be aware of that. God damn you. It is a little strange that we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity. Working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. Campus is a loaded minefield. There are girls everywhere. It's guaranteed that I will pass some attractive girls as I walk in between classes. If it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season, and she endures perhaps being smacked one night, and then she seeks help from the church. It would be hard for me to see how a woman could be a drill sergeant right face, left face, keep your mouth shut, private, over over men without violating their sense of manhood and her sense of womanhood. Go home. They want power, not equality. This is the highest location they can ascend to that power in the evangelical church. We are meaning makers and storytellers, and the stories we tell ourselves are the stories that shape our lives. We need each other badly or goodly. We need each other, and we keep forgetting again and again and again that we are loved. And we say, no, I'm no good. No, I messed it all up. No, I feel so guilty. No, I feel so ashamed. We need each other. In the midst of this difficult, dark, and often violent world, we need to have a community of support to which we can call all people and be a community of hope. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Opening. The clock has just struck 12. It's midnight, the kids are in bed, my wife is in bed, and I've got some breakfast casserole in the oven, and while that is cooking, I'm going to be starting a podcast. I'll probably have to pause at some point to get that out of the oven, but that is what's going on in my life right now. It is, it's rather interesting juggling a lot of these different things. I'm a stay-at-home dad, but I'm also a religion writer, and I'm just getting started in podcasting. And so, you know, I've got these, I'll be dealing with the cooking or the laundry, but I've also got articles that I'm writing. And and even with that, it's it's interesting because like this week, I wrote an article about Tish Harrison Warren, and I'll, uh, we'll eventually do a podcast on that episode. But in that article, I I went into a, a lot of detail about embodiment, and I looked I interviewed a pastor and and so the the amount of work that goes into an article is is quite a bit and but then for some reason it was like on you know for some reason on social media it it didn't really t- 
take off as much as, as some of my article, other articles do. But then I'll post a tweet about the anniversary of the Answers in Genesis debate with Ken Ham versus Bill Nye from eight years ago. And all of a sudden, all of these people are interacting with it. It's getting shared. I'm getting a bunch of new Twitter followers. And so you never know how these things are going to work out. There, I, I still don't understand any kind of rhyme or reason to it. But it's it's fun to just put in the work and, and see where it goes. And, and, you know, there seems to be a, a growing audience for for it. So anyway, in this article today, we are that we're going to be reading and discussing. We're going to be talking about an article that I wrote. This was the first article that got published with Baptist News. So this is in July 10th of 2020. Uh, my family and I had had sat down to watch the musical Hamilton, and we, as we were watching it, there was a song that came on partway through by uh, King the, the King George character called You'll Be Back. And when I listened to it, my jaw just hit the floor. Like, I couldn't, rem- I couldn't believe how much this reminded me of the Calvinistic view of God that I had believed in for so many years. And so I wrote an article about it, and I posted it on Medium, and then, and I shared it on social media. And then the person who oversees Baptist News Global reached out to me and said, uh, "Would you mind if I posted this on our website?" And so I said, "Sure." And so he posted it there, and then I offered him to offer to write another article, which he did, and it just kind of kept on going from there. So. This was the first article that officially got published there, and so we will read this, and then I'll be discussing it. I watched Hamilton last night for the first time and I was struck by the parallels in King George's song You'll Be Back to the Calvinistic View of God. The lyrics say, The price of my love's not a price yet that you're willing to pay. Now you're making me mad, and when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. You're my favorite subject, my sweet submissive subject, my loyal royal subject, forever and ever and ever and ever. I will fight the fight and win the war for your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. Because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Consider those words from Hamilton in light of these words about the coronavirus from John Piper. Quote, Calamities are God's previews of what sin deserves and will one day receive in judgment a thousand times worse. The coronavirus is a merciful wake-up call to be ready for Christ's return. The coronavirus is God's thunderclap call for all of us to repent and realign our lives with the infinite worth of Christ. Or consider King George's lyrics in light of John Piper's thoughts on how we should feel about his theology of eternal conscious torment. He gets glory because his grace and mercy shine more brightly against the darker backdrop of sin and judgment and wrath. And our worship and experience of that grace intensifies and deepens because we see we don't deserve to be where we are. Or consider King George's lyrics in light of this quote from Jonathan Edwards, who is John Piper's hero. 
The saints are called upon to rejoice in seeing the love and tenderness of God towards them manifested in his severity towards their enemies. This rejoicing will be the fruit of a perfect holiness and conformity to Christ, that the just damnation of the wicked will be an occasion of rejoicing to the saints in glory, to rejoice in seeing his love to them in executing justice on his enemies. For the heavenly inhabitants will know that it is not fit that they should love them, because they will know then that God has no love to them, nor pity for them. The Calvinistic view of God says that God will send the armed battalion of the coronavirus to remind you of God's love, and that God will torture your friends and family in hell forever in order to remind you of God's love for you. Sounds an awful lot like King George. In fact, it sounds infinitely worse than King George. If God is merely an infinitely magnified version of King George, then that is not good news. It's the worst news imaginable. Of course, when I was a Calvinist, I would have said God gets to be that way because he's God and is glorious enough to be that way and still be holy. But who can see the heaving chest of an elderly woman, consider her desperate gulps for air to be the mercy of God, and maintain their humanity? Who can gaze into the eyes of their child, rejoice in them being tortured for eternity because God's hatred of their child is a reminder of God's love for them? and maintain their humanity. The conservative evangelicalism of Together for the Gospel, the Gospel Coalition, the Southern Baptist Seminaries, and the Presbyterian Church in America, among others today, has been fundamentally shaped by the affections that have been formed by John Calvin's theology as interpreted through the likes of Jonathan Edwards and John Piper. It's no wonder that the faces of a people so shaped by the theology of lost humanity would look on closed lungs, children in cages, bleeding or imprisoned black bodies without empathy. It's no wonder that their hearts come alive with rage at the sight of a toppling statue. It's because the humanity of their hearts has more in common with those stone statues than with the people who have been hurt by the wars and systems that the men represented by those statues waged and built. Unmasking John Calvin's God and conservative evangelicalism seems virtually insurmountable because his followers are convinced that they are free in grace and that their theology comes from the Bible and a high view of a sovereign God. They would have to hear King George's words as great parallels to their view of God. But the seed of humanity in all of us knows when we watch Hamilton that King George's character is unhealthy. Perhaps the great unmasking of Calvin's God won't come from the pulpit or the classroom, but in those little moments where we glimpse into the mirrors of three-minute songs glance over at our laughing kids and begin to wonder. So looking back at this article, I'd really like to get into a discussion about Calvinism because as, as I said in the article, I talked about how Calvinism cuts us off from our humanity. And yet, it's, it's really ironic because, you know, you got Grace to You with John MacArthur, you've got Desiring God with John Piper, you've got the Gospel Coalition with any number of people involved with that, and then you, you, you've had Mark Driscoll in the past, and you, you've got Doug Wilson now. Like, all of these people are Calvinists, and they're all causing really, um, really great harm to people on the underside of power and to women 
as well. And so I think it, it's easy for us to think, okay, this is this these guys are Calvinists. This is what Calvinism is. But one of the ironic things that has happened since that I've noticed since writing this article is that many of the most influential people who are speaking out against these men are themselves Calvinists. And I'm thinking about people like Kristen Dumay or Jacob and Rachel Denhollander and, and others. There, there are a number of people that I follow on Twitter who identify as Calvinists, and yet they're, um, they're speaking out against these harmful Calvinists. And so I think since, since writing the article, I have come to see over the last year and a half that we need to have a more nuanced conversation than simply saying Calvinists. And so there, there's, a, there's a lot more going on here because there, are, there is a world of, of, of difference between Christine Dumay and John MacArthur. And, and, and then Jacob and Rachel Den Hollander are different than Christine Dumay. And so what I'd like to do in this episode is give a, a, a bit more of a, a history on Calvinism and how it came to be and on some of the different strains of Calvinism that we may be seeing today. And I'll, a lot of this, and I'll just preface this, a lot of this is in process for me. So I'm not saying that this is the definitive podcast that's going to answer all your questions. Why why is Kristen Dumay a Calvinist and John MacArthur a Calvinist, and yet they're so different? Um, and, and also, I'm not speaking for anybody in this podcast. So this is just, I'm not speaking on behalf of Kristen Dumay. I'm not even a Calvinist. You know, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Denhallanders or, or whoever else I mention. This is just my read on what's going on. And so with that in mind, a lot of this started during the Reformation, actually not with John Calvin, it started with Ulrich Zwingli, and he is the, he is known as the father of Reformed Protestant theology, and he was very famous in Zurich City for drowning the radical reformers. So there was the reformers, and then there were the radical reformers, which were Anabaptists who were in favor of baptizing uh, people, adults, after they became Christians rather than baptizing babies. And so Ulrich Zwingli uh, was not going to have any of that, and he decided to drown them. And so uh, they would they would even mock the Anabaptists, say, if you, you believe in immersion, then we're going to immerse you in this water and drown you. And so that's... Uh, those were a lot of power games that was going that were going on then. And then in the Second Capital War that lasted one day, Zwingli was killed along with hundreds of other men and two dozen preachers. Why were they fighting in a war? Um, we're not going to get into all that right now, but it's just interesting to note that Zwingli is where a lot of this uh, theology came from, and yet he was so. Uh, horribly, horribly violent to to people, and so um, while so basically his his theology, what was his theology? He he identified the entire Bible with God's word, unlike Luther. You might remember Luther, Martin Luther uh, was actually against certain books of the Bible, 
and uh, you know Zwingli also taught that all truth is God's truth, and so he would we- he would weave Greek philosophy and Christian natural theology and Aristotelian logic and biblical theology and Christian tradition into a into a conversation, and within all of that, his his basic idea was that God's sovereignty was the first principle, and. You know, whereas Luther was focused on salvation by grace through faith alone, was his first primary focus. Zwingli's first primary focus was God's sovereignty. And so his Zwingli, Zwingli basically believed that if, if anything were guided on its own, God's wisdom and power would be deficient. And so he, he had this idea called theopanism, which is the belief in God as the one actor in energy in everything. And, and so, you know, so, uh, an action that might be a sin for humans, like, you know, rape or murder, uh, would actually bring honor to God in some way. And, and God would be ultimately the one actor in energy in everything in order to bring glory to himself in these different ways. So that was Ulrich Zwingli. But as we mentioned, he died in the Second Kappa War. So then comes John Calvin. And, and Calvin organized and systematized and articulated Zwingli's Reformed theology in, in a way that Zwingli hadn't been able to do. And so his, his emphasis was on, again, God's sovereignty, God's sovereign rule over creation. And, and he talked about these structures of common grace, like economics, family, government, education, or art. And he basically said that in each of these structures, they're all orders of creation in order to serve God's purposes. And, and yet, he says that the order was subverted by the fall in Genesis 3. And so, there's this problem. You've got all of these... Uh, these, these orders of creation have been affected by the fall, and so then through Christ, the devil is defeated. And, and then through the church, creation is restored by extending the rule of Christ throughout these different structures of common grace. And so, you know, specifically even in government, he would talk about how the government is a divine order for promoting the good. He talked about how the government is exists to defend the poor. And then he also talked about how the government promoted a true religion and enforced church discipline. And that's where Calvin had a lot of problems, was as he, you know, just like Zwingli used the Zurich City Council, John Calvin, through Geneva, went and had heretic hunters and was trying to enforce church discipline and uh, true religion through governmental power. So, moving on from there, another figure that is prominent in this conversation is Jonathan Edwards. He's known as the Prince of Puritans. He's the guy, you might remember, who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that sermon of where the, you know, he's talking about how God is holding you like a like a spider over the flames of hell and and you know and it just scared the living daylights out of people he's he's known as the major theologian of american puritanism or america's theologian and and then and edwards also 
he 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 did a lot of work on the psychology of religion and he wrote about the glory and freedom of god but also the the depravity and the bondage of humans and he talked about our hearts and our affections as being our the center of who we are as as humanity and he had a, he had a fear of arminian theology which was m- more uh uh, belief in free will and in human freedom to decide things. Um, he he had a fear of, of religious rationalism. And so he he basically said that, that God, just like Calvin, just like Zwingli, he said that God is the all-determining reality. God determines everything. And, and, and that God's only motive was self-glory. And so he also was a theopanist. Uh, which was the belief that God is the one actor and energy in everything. And so, uh, and then he also talked about how God made a strict identity between Adam and, and his descendant, and uh, like with Adam and his descendants. And, and so that was, that was Jonathan Edwards. And, and again, you'll see John Piper and, and others really resonating with him today. So, then we we come to this this figure that uh, named Abraham Kuyper, and he had a, a some similarities, but he also had some some differences from from the previous guys. So he emphasized a private, sacred space with God, and he whereas like Calvin talked about these structures of um, these structures of common grace. Kuiper talked about spheres of lordship, and and so they would be things like social, the social, the political, the economic, and and the, he he was where you, you probably heard this phrase, or the, the the saying, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine, and so he believed Kuiper believed that that God saves us into a community that serves God's purposes in the world of God sovereignly ruling over all things. And he, he focused on, he pointed to Genesis 1.28, where it said, be fruitful and multiply. And he talked about how that, that's like a, a cultural mandate, where Adam and Eve were in a garden and having dominion to, to rule over, over culture. But sin entered from disobedience to God's command. And he says that we now show the world what living in submission to God looks like in all of life. And, and so Jesus broke, Jesus fixed what was broken and, and allowed for a diversity amongst creation to, to flourish. And so, you know, this, this stream of Calvinism really embraces diversity amongst the nations. It, it embraces a unity within the complexity, and 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 regarding those those cultural spheres, he he talked about like some examples might be your family or your business or art or school or church or politics, and, and Kuiper believed that each sphere has its own purpose, a different role or a point, and I kind of wonder if bringing this to our, our current conversation. I know Kristen Dumay has mentioned Kuiper a good bit. Um, I've heard her, you know, on podcasts and different things mentioning him. 
And part of me wonders if, if maybe this is what Dumais means when she says, I'm doing history, not theology, because like Denny Burke and others will go after her and say, you're, you're, being, you're being too theological in your book, Jesus and John Wayne. And I remember when I thought it, when I read it, I was thinking, I wish she would be more theological. This seems too, too much like history to me. And little did I know, you know, she, that's what she meant to do. Like she's a historian and she has come back and said, I'm a historian. I wasn't doing theology. I was telling you what happened. Beth Allison Barr in the making of biblical womanhood has also said, I am a historian. And so I was telling you, this is the story of how biblical womanhood came to be. And she did, she, she got into a little bit more theology than Dumais did, but specifically with Dumais, Maybe maybe all it is is she's just saying, hey, I'm just doing history, I'm a historian. But I wonder if maybe some of this sphere thing might be happening here because a, a, a Kuiper view of Calvinism could see doing history as its own sphere and doing theology as a different sphere or doing science as a different sphere. And so part of me wonders if maybe that's where some of that's coming from. Um. I don't think she's theologically clueless. I don't think she's theologically disengaged. I, I just wonder if maybe she's she's expressing her Calvinism within that specific sphere of being a historian. So uh, with, with government, Kuiper talked about how the government has a specific purpose, which was to deal with the disputes between the spheres. When there were different spheres that would come up, you could have, or with their differences, the the government would 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 deal with those disputes and would would ultimately defend the weak against the strong, and, and then also would would find ways to make sure that the state was able to be maintained. A lot of a lot of Calvinists who like Kuiper tend to be a bit more liberal, but Kuiper was not a socialist. He denied that the Bible supported socialists. Uh, socialism. So he he actually critiqued socialism because he said that socialism pits the rich, the poor versus the rich, and and for Kuiper, he said that if like when you look at the Lord's Prayer, for example, it doesn't say I, it says us and we, and so within the Lord's Prayer, if if we're assuming the communal us, then that is going to include both the rich and the poor praying together. For bread, for daily bread, which, which would have a communal uh, a concern for it, and so it's it's a communal concern, but not pitted the poor versus the rich, and and so that was his critique of of socialism, and where he saw the Lord's Prayer providing an alternative, communal minded way of living, but without becoming socialist. Um, he he his his goal was that there be better legislation for the spheres to operate more effectively. And, and so basically looking, looking back at these Calvinists throughout history, there's, there are these medieval Calvinists that had a hierarchy of God over the church, which was then over the state art economics, family, science, all these different structures. And, and then, and, and that could be like your Zwingli, your Calvin, 
and then then there are the you know in response today that let's say there's there's secularism which would just say let's get rid of god and the church put those off to the side god can god can be over the church whatever they can do their thing really we need to have politics art economics family science freed from god and the church and and kuiper said no the hierarchy is god over the state art economics family and science and then christians operating within each of those spheres spheres to bring about what god was bringing about the new creation and so those are basically the differences between uh, you know between the medieval god over the church over the structures the hierarchy and then the Kuiper hierarchy, which was just God over these spheres, and then Christians within those spheres working for renewal. So, with that in mind, we then come to today's, what I'm going to call, Pop Calvinism. So, this is... uh, the John MacArthur's, the Matt Chandler's, the the Gospel Coalition's, the Albert Muller's, um, and and so basically, they they have this uh, a, a few different characteristics. One is this hierarchy of male power. So you might remember when John MacArthur uh, told Beth Moore to go home. Uh, he, a lot of people. Got a lot of people focused on his his phrase "go home," but within his little rant there, he had this section where he said, and and I actually have this this quote in the uh, or p- part of this quote in the intro to to the show. He says they don't want equal power to be a plumber; they want to be senators, preachers, congressmen, president, the power structure in the university. And he's talking about women here. They want power, not equality, and this is the highest location they can ascend to, that power in the evangelical church. And so it's he's so you got MacArthur saying women want power. He's saying it's an ascension. The pastorate in an evangelical church is an ascent in as a power, a place of power that you can ascend to. And then you've got Matt Chandler, who's ahead of the the X29 network, which is a big Calvinist complementarian world, uh, he said, "We, we have always believed that the local church is God's primary mission strategy here on earth. And so you put these two together, what God is primarily doing on the earth is in the local church. And then in the local church, men are in charge and uh, it's an ascent. The pastor, the evangelical pastor, is the highest ascension to power. So basically, what God, according to these men, what God is doing on the earth is primarily through evangelical male pastors. That is the ultimate position of power on the entire planet, which they just happen to to hold, and and they talk about it in this hierarchical language, and then. While, while, while the other Calvinisms that we had talked about, the medieval, uh, you, had, you had the medieval Calvinism that, that had the structures of God's sovereignty, and then and then the Kuiper the Kuiper Calvinism that had the spheres of God's sovereignty. 
within this pop Calvinism that you see in the Gospel Colossian and Desiring God and stuff today, they have these domains of hierarchy that they believe are pictures of the gospel in order to promote God's glory through power and submission. And so you look at, for example, this quote by John MacArthur, where he was talking about slavery. It is a little strange that um, we have such an aversion to slavery uh, because historically there have been abuses. There have been abuses in marriage. We don't have an aversion to marriage, particularly, because there have been abuses. There, There are parents who abuse their children. We don't have an aversion to having children because some parents have been abusive. Of course, it can have any kind of situation where abuse can can be involved. The reason unions grew up in America was not to free slaves. The reason unions grew up in America was because there were people who had businesses and they were abusing their employees. So to throw out slavery as a concept simply because there have been abuses, I think, is to miss the point. In any kind of human relationship, there can be abuses. There can also be benefits for many people, poor people, perhaps people who weren't educated, perhaps people who had no other opportunity, working for a gentle, caring, loving master was the best of all possible worlds. If you had the right master, everything was taken care of. So we have to go back and take a more honest look at slavery and understand that God has, in a sense, legitimized it when it's handled correctly by saying this is the way you're to view your relationship to Jesus Christ, the perfect all-wise, all-loving, all-compassionate, all-beneficent Lord, and you willing to be his slave because of such unique care provided by him. If you ask me to be a slave, I will simply ask you one question. Who is my master? If you tell me that my master loves me with a perfect love from which I can never be separated, If you tell me that my master will pour out all his riches on my behalf and hold nothing back, if you tell me that my master knows me and knows what is best for me and in every case will provide everything that is best for me, if you tell me that my master will use me in the advancement of his own enterprises and that I will share in his reward, if you tell me that my master will make me as a son and give me all that he possesses as an heir of his own true son, if you tell me that my master will forgive all my sins and reward me forever, I can't sign up fast enough to be a slave of that master. And and that is the issue. Slavery is not objectionable if you have the right master. It's the perfect scenario. Everything you need is met and more in a caring, loving environment where God provides all that we need through Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. So you notice from this John MacArthur quote how he's, he's not just trying to show how slavery uh, is was supposedly good. He, I mean, he's calling it the best of all possible worlds, but he's, he's doing it because he's applying the Ephesians 5 and 6 um, hierarchies to slavery and saying it's a picture of the gospel and Jesus as our master. And there is... 
my breakfast casserole. So I'm going to go get that, and then I'll come back. Okay, the breakfast casserole made it. I'm a little nervous because last time, I'm supposed to put the cheese on last, and I accidentally put the cheese on before the sausage, and so the sausage, uh, and then I, I forgot to cover it for part of the cooking, so the sausage, I'm a little nervous it might be a little burnt, but lesson learned. Hopefully hopefully it's fine. We'll find out in the morning. Um, I might even have a, a, a taste, a test taste to make sure everything's good after this episode's done, so... In the meantime, back to John MacArthur. Um, so he he's using the the gospel in order to talk about the, this beautiful picture of slavery as the best of all possible worlds, and and he's not the only one who's done this. Albert Muller did this in a 1998 interview on Larry King Live. He said uh, he said if you're a slave, there's a way to behave, and then. When uh, Larry King asked him if he would criticize slaves who tried to escape, Muller said, quote, I want to look at this I want to look at this text seriously, and it says to submit to the master. And I really don't see any loophole here as much as in terms of popular culture, we'd want to see one. And then uh, in 2020, uh, about a month before month or two before this article that I'd written about Calvinism, uh, Muller ended up getting some pressure about it, and he recanted his position. He said, It sounds like an incredibly stupid moment, and it was. I fell into a trap I should have avoided, and I don't stand by those comments. I repudiate the statements I made. But the problem is, that, like, on one hand, I'm thankful that Al Albert Muller uh apologize for those statements, unlike MacArthur, who never apologizes about anything and still hasn't apologized for telling Beth Moore to go home. Uh, but, but Albert Muller, at least he apologized. But this is where things start to break down, because he's now being inconsistent when it doesn't serve his power. Because he's, in, in, in these uh, ancient household codes... You have the, the husband over the wife, the parents over the children, the master over the slave. Those were the ancient hier hierarchical household codes that are displayed in Ephesians 5 and 6. And now Albert Muller is picking and choosing which ones he's going to apply as a picture of the gospel and which ones he's not because his power was getting questioned and was uh, was getting a little threatened by, by this. So... MacArthur may be promoting some sexist and racist theology, but at least he's consistent, unlike Albert Muller. Now, in a recent article at Desiring God, you had John Piper referring back to Jonathan Edwards and was calling him a hero. He was one of the, the Calvinists that we talked about in, in this uh, podcast today, and now, he, he called him a, a hero despite being a slave owner, but he, he also mentioned that the, the reason that, that Edwards was a slave owner was because of the hierarchical assumptions of his day. And MacArthur said that that's the, the main difference between Edwards' day and our day is that uh, Edwards had that hierarchy 
uh, that was separating people into roles of authority and service. Now, as I'm reading this article, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how can you, again, Piper is, is rightly pointing out this hierarchy of master over slave that, that Edwards had, but then it's like he doesn't see that he has a male over female hierarchy. Like, these, these master over slave hierarchies that Edwards believed in, he was getting them from 1 Corinthians 7, Ephesians 4 to 6, and Colossians 3 to 4. And yet, and yet Piper, Piper was, was, was claiming that these, the roles of master and slave in, in these passages, he says, they are so transformed by Christian reality that what they once were is no more. But the social, the social shell, there's a tongue twister, the, the social shell seems to remain. What we might call the social structure or shell of this institution is left in place in the New Testament, but for Christians, it was only a shell, a social structure whose inner reality was radically new. And, and yet Piper doesn't mention that it, alongside the master and slave relationship in these passages is the husband and wife relationship, and he's not willing to call that a social shell. Um, because that would suddenly bring into question his views of marriage and sexuality. And so there's a lot there. We're going to get into some more of that next week uh, when we talk about uh, uh, complementarianism. Uh, but now my cat is eating plastic. So you get the kids in bed and you get a cat eating plastic. I'll be back. Okay, and then, and then there's this there's there's other character that Piper loves, whose name is Doug Wilson, and and Doug Wilson recently got into a controversy when he said, "Godly women want to feed their men. Godly women are designed to make the sandwiches. This is not an absolute law, and there are times when a man fends for himself and makes quite a decent sandwich, but in the general scheme of things, the Apostle Paul wants the women to make the sandwiches." This is also the guy who said that, quote, the sexual act cannot be made into an egalitarian pleasuring party. A man penetrates, conquers, colonizes, plants when a woman receives, surrenders, accepts, and that, quote, true authority and true submission are therefore an erotic necessity. So this is why, this is why I'm calling these guys pop Calvinists, because there, there is a world of difference between Kuiper talking about these spheres of sovereignty in which Christians live and work toward new creation, and, and the, the Doug Wilsons and the John Pipers talking about women making sandwiches and, and sex being not being an egalitarian pleasuring party. And the quotes I could share from Piper are just, would blow your mind, some of the things that he said. And, and we'll talk about some of those over time. But, and, and the defenses of slavery that Moeller and MacArthur are talking about, and the, 
the hierarchies of, of male power that Matt Chandler and John MacArthur are talking about. Like, there's just, this is, this is not what John Calvin and Abraham Kuyper were, were, were promoting. And even though I have many differences than them, uh, that's not what those guys were promoting. So they have this idea of the hierarchy of male power. They've got the domains of hierarchy as pictures of the gospel. And so they, they basically defend hierarchical power dynamics as pictures of the gospel, which is why they defend their views of marriage and their views of slavery. And then the pop Calvinists have this weird dichotomy going on where human identity is both image of God and worthless. So, for example, uh, here's this clip from Paul Washer, who's really big in this pop Calvinist world. And here is where he talks about uh, what he thinks of when he's holding an 18-month-old baby. But imagine for a moment an 18-month-old baby that you're holding in your arms. And that 18-month-old baby sees that shiny watch on your wrist. And he grabs for your watch. And you pull his hand away and say no. He begins to cry and move about in your arms. He reaches for the watch again. You grab his hand and say no. He begins to scream and cry. He reaches for the watch again. You say no. He begins to frail his arms even in the direction of your face. I submit to you that if that 18-month-old baby had the strength of an 18-year-old man, he would slaughter you there where you stand, Father, rip the watch off your arm and walk across your bloody body out the door without feeling an ounce of remorse. You see, here's something you need to understand. Hitler was not an anomaly. Hitler was not a phenomenon. Hitler was what everyone in this room has the potential of being. And not only that, you need to understand, even in all the, all the wickedness of Hitler, Hitler was still restrained by the common grace of God. And you need to know this, that if it were not for the common grace of God restraining you in your unconverted state, you would make Hitler look like a choir boy. What we do not understand is what Scripture teaches about men. Men are evil. You say, well, I don't agree. That's because you've grabbed enough of Christianity to stand, but you don't believe the Bible. So, so talk about, like, dehumanizing kids. I mean, really, you're, you're holding an 18-month-old, and the next thing you know, you're talking about the, the baby walking across your bloody body over a watch? Like, does Paul Washer have any idea about brain development here? Does he have any idea about neuroscience or, or how adults mature over time? Like, this is... It's 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 not even it's it's almost not even worth responding to. It's so horrific. But these people are this is the their view of children and this is the way they they shape kids. And that's what I was referring to last week when I said that evangelicalism has a has a weird relationship with children. I think this is a sign one of the signs of that. And Another 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 piece to this that pop Calvinists have is that they they believe that all that happens is ordered by God to glorify God, and this this does tap into the the Edwards, 
the um and and the, the the theopanism of Edwards and and Calvin and Zwingli, where where God is the the agent and energy that that is acting through everything, and and where this where this gets them in trouble is when they start talking about that in very dehumanizing and violent situations. So Piper again talked about ugliness and talked about ugly people. And he said that God, in an article, he said that God made ugly people to show that, quote, physical ugliness and misery correspond to moral ugliness and misery. And then he blamed the existence of ugly people on, quote, the origin of human sin in Adam and Eve. And he concluded that God, quote, makes all physical ugliness serve to show his own worth. So, you think in our American society that is so image conscious with all of the insecurities that we have that he would not be telling people that are struggling with the way they look, oh, you're ugly, God made you ugly, and God did that in order to make himself look good. Like, going back to my article, this is dehumanizing. This is another example of how this pop Calvinism dehumanizes people. And, and not only does it dehumanize people, but what does that say about God? What kind of God would do something like that? But it, it gets even worse. He says that he tells victims of child molestation that they need to see God's, that they need to, quote, see God's sovereignty at the moment of causality of their child molestation. And that if they don't, you will now be left with no God to help you deal with this. You have just shoved him off, and in your pain, you have shoved him so far to the edge of the universe that for the rest of your life, you are crying out to a God to do miracles, yet you have pushed him away. And so you try to say there is no sense in which the sovereign God willed that, you will lose God for the rest of your life. And what an absolutely horrific, monstrous view of God that is. That God causes sexual assault, that God causes rape, and that if a woman who experiences that and who suffers through that says that God doesn't cause her rape, then they are pushing God off. And, and he's telling them specifically, you will lose God for the rest of your life. What an absolute absolutely horrible theology. The fact that John Piper has a platform in evangelicalism, and then the Gospel Coalition has him speaking as a featured speaker in their women's conference this year? Are you kidding me? Like, I can't even... I can't even fathom the, the absolute lack of humanity in the Gospel Coalition, to allow a man like John Piper, after saying those words, to then be a featured speaker at a women's conference. (laughs) 
So one of my favorite theologians is an Eastern Orthodox theologian named David Bentley Hart, and he talks about how our theology of God fuels our power dynamics toward others. And he was specifically referring to Western Christianity, and he he talked about how it believes in a how it how it has believed in a, a God of absolute sovereign will and power, who's sort of a cartoon of a king on his throne with absolute privilege and potency. And then that becomes the model of the sovereign self because the self becomes a mirror of the God who is most high that the, so that the pure sovereign God of the 16th and 17th century theology becomes a reflection of the absolute sovereign of the emerging nation state. And he continues, By the end of the 16th and 17th centuries, it's gotten to a point where God is a bit of a bad guy, just a tyrant, a sovereign, just pure dis- predestining, absolute power exercising itself for the sake of power, and then that becomes the paradigm for what it is to be human, to be a sovereign individual self, to be free is to be a little God. And I could not I could not think of a better description of these little pop Calvinist gods that go around putting themselves at the top of the hierarchy on the planet. And and they they believe that they are basically little gods, and and that's that's who these gospel coalition and desiring God and grace to you men are. So how do I process all of this? I think that you know Zwingli and Calvin, they were too tied in the state for me to connect much with their vision. Jonathan Edwards was was too tied into slavery and worm theology, which is what we call you know. You're just a spider. You're just a worm. Uh, for me to really resonate with with him, Abraham Kuyper was interesting because he he presents a within and among redemptive nature to Christian presence in the world. So you know Christians are within and among the spheres, uh, working towards new creation. So I think Kuyper does have some things that I can resonate with there. Um, I think that's. Part of the way Dumay is Christian Dumay is operating within the sphere of a historian. Uh, that's how certain theologians can operate within the sphere of theologians. Or like uh, the, the Den Hollanders seem to have, they seem to have this within and among presence as as they enter into different spheres. And and yet, yet the Den Hollanders, Rachel and, and Jacob Den Hollander. They, they they also still have some of the retributive theology of substitutionary atonement uh, that that is found in some of the more conservative Calvinists, but they're they're doing it in a less cartoonish way than a lot of the pop Calvinists. So they would see, and from my understanding, is the Den Hollanders would see the Father and the Son working together in the substitutionary atonement rather than the father beating the hell out of the son, which is what, like, you know, the sovereign grace type atonement theories. Uh, you, the perfect holy one, crushed your son who paid, you know, and, and now I'm loved forevermore because of what you've done and all this kind of stuff. So the gospel coalition, the desiring God, the, the grace to you, the center for biblical manhood and womanhood, Doug Wilson, all these guys, they're, they're really just about the, the pop Calvinist hierarchy of male power. And, and so there's really nothing I can do with, with those guys. So you're going to get a 
within these 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 different worlds, you're going to have a diversity of fruit at various levels. With various levels of, of abuse, some of the abuse might be overt, some of it might be subconscious, but there's quite a quite a range of different people here. And 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 so um a couple other names I wanted to throw out. So Calvin University. I heard from some people who worked there or they knew people who worked there or they they were there as, stu- as students that to to work at Calvin University you you have to affirm the canons of Dort and the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, but that many of the faculty there have very loose connections to Calvinism beyond that. And now I can't say this is verified. This is just what I've been told by people who have either worked for or been students at the school. Um, I know that like the the Christian Reformed Church, they ordain women, whereas the uh, PCA Church won't even let them be deacons. Though I know Tim Keller has promoted the women being deacons, and I know that some people in the the RCA is are LGBTQ affirming, and so like literally, there is there are there's so much variety amongst these these Calvinistic groups. Um, one uh, one person who who went to Calvin University, he told me he said, "quote I spent multiple years while I was enrolled at Calvin attending CRC churches." And I can count on one hand the number of times election, reprobation, total depravity, and predestination were even mentioned from the pulpit. Sovereignty and divine providence were the main hallmarks of the kind of Calvinism that filtered its way into the teaching and preaching in chapel at Calvin, in a way that's about as orthodox as any other articulation. God intends to set the world to rights, and he will do it through us, whom he has empowered to do so through Christ's death, and resurrection and sending the spirit. So that was his his uh, take on Calvin University's relationship with Calvinism and some of these denominations. But I think that um, a tension that's going on between these groups is there's a creativity and a novelty on one side, but then there's also a, a, a boundary and a separation on the other. So You've got your your boundaries and separations of structures and spheres and domains, but then you also have this uh, creativity of like Kuiper, where the Christians are within and among these spheres, bringing about new creation. And so I think within these Calvinistic worlds, where some of the abuse comes in is when you combine hierarchy, this hierarchical view of sovereignty over, and when you... Uh, focus more on the boundaries and the separations than on the within and among relational creativity and novelty. I think Kristen Dumay focuses more on the creativity and the novelty. Uh, I think the Den Hollanders would would probably fit in more with uh, bringing about new creation uh, than uh, focusing on rigid, r- rigid boundaries and separations like some of the the Gospel Coalition type guys would. Um, but really, in all of these worlds, what they really all have in common is that is God's sovereignty over all things. And so, if you look at that, God's sovereignty over all things, sovereignty is power, and over is a hierarchy. So. 
God's sovereignty over is really a power hierarchy. And, and, and I don't think that that is, is really resonant with the, the universe that we find ourselves in. Uh, when you're, when you going back to my, my original article with Hamilton, when you are eating popcorn and watching Hamilton with your kids, you're not thinking about hierarchies and spheres. In, in those moments, you feel whole. And I think that that is because what is ultimately going on is a, a, a deepening awareness and experience of wholeness. That's our cosmology. It's a big, it's a it's a wholeness that is becoming greater holes in in depth, complexity, and union. And we'll get into that in more detail in future episodes. But I think that uh, that's why I don't think this Calvinism stuff. Some of it's going to be more healthy than others, but ultimately I don't think it's, it's, it's the best framework for us to see reality through. But with that said, since writing this article, I, I have come to recognize a lot more of these nuances of, of within the world of Calvinism. And so through that, I can, I can now open up to see my neighbors more clearly. I can, I can begin to learn who I can work with and to what degree. So like an Owen Strachan, John Piper, John MacArthur, Albert Moeller, Doug Wilson, I'm not going to have anything to do with those guys. Um, the Den Hollanders, I, I will definitely promote their work when they're uh, with their work on, uh, you know, against uh, sexual abuse. But I may not, I might not be all gung ho about some of the work on substitutionary atonement that they, they put out. Whereas, you know, Kristen Dumay, yeah, I'll I'll promote her views of theology all day long, and uh, or sorry, her views of history all day long, and and I'll share the stories that she's telling. But I'm not going to then call myself a Calvinist just because Kristen Demay calls herself a Calvinist. So there there are varying degrees of of how I can who I can work with and to what degree, uh, but but ultimately I think what my desire is to is to see them as my neighbors more clearly and so that way I can begin to wonder how I might love them more and and so with that said I've, I've tried in recent articles to be a bit more nuanced instead of just saying Calvinism I've critiqued conservative evangelical Calvinism or conservative evangelical complementarian Calvinism. I've tried to be a little bit more precise in what I'm critiquing because I don't want Kristen Dumay and the Den Hollanders to be thrown into the same conversation as, or into the same critique as Owen Strachan and John MacArthur because those are just very different worlds. So that complementarian piece is something that I'd like to spend more time on. And I wrote a piece about how reading Aristotle frees us from John Piper and Albert Muller's complementarianism. And so that's going to be what we're going to get into during our next episode of The Opening. I don't think that the church has integrity to speak any good news at all until the church actually understands the reality that it is living and has crafted bad news 
in public policy. It has established theological foundations for oppression that have lived throughout the times and only changed shape over the generations, but has not been repented of. Bad theology always produces diminished psychology. Diminished psychology produces dysfunctional sociology. Dysfunctional sociology always produces oppressive anthropology, and then they always produce oppressive economics and ideologies. So it all flows from bad theology. Your notion of God is wrong or flawed. Your notion of self and others and power is wrong. Thank you for listening to the opening podcast with Rick Pitcock. The opening is a podcast that deconstructs the power dynamics of religious hierarchies and opens us up to healthy relationship. For more information about today's episode, please check out rickpitcock.com and follow on social media at Rick Pitcock.